Hey, this is Ben Arthur, and I'm here with Cindy from Basic Folk, um, because this uh, episode is an introducing episode where you all are going to get to hear one of the very best episodes of an excellent podcast. Uh, Cindy. Hello. (laughs) Hi, Cindy. (laughs) Hi. Thank you for that nice introduction. Of course. Uh, Tell us about Basic Folk and uh, about particularly this episode. Well, Basic Folk is a podcast featuring interviews with folk musicians. I like to say it's honest conversations with folk musicians. Um, something So it's hosted by myself. I'm a public radio host and have been on NPR music stations for like 15 plus years. Um, and I really loved um, kind of like in, in college, I kind of fell in love with folk music um, in particular, the folk music that surrounds the Boston music community. And then that has expanded in many far reaches of the world. Um, I'm also a host on um, an online folk radio station called Folk Alley. Um, and I just, I, I love the people who play folk music. I love the music. I love the people who love folk music. And I wanted to create an interview podcast for the genre and by the way our definition of folk is very broad so you'll hear singer songwriters you'll hear celtic musicians bluegrass musicians maybe even like an indie rock guy or girl or other um on but i really wanted to create an interview podcast that gives musicians a chance to take time and really like tell their story and really kind of get to know who they are as people and how that translates into their songs because I think artists really have they give us a gift in the form of their art but they're also able to observe the world in ways that regular people like me who are not I'm not an artist get to observe and really help us understand ourselves understand our feelings feel connected uh, and feel understood. Um, so that's basic folk in a, a very big nutshell. But uh, another thing I'd like to add is that we do like a crazy amount of research. Um, so really the questions that we're asking, we know like the myself, the host, and we have a guest host, the singer-songwriter Lizzie No. Like we already know the story that the musician is going to tell, hopefully. But we want to know like what's going on like underneath that story. Um, so we're kind of like investigators in that sense. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems to me that that honest, uh, that word honest, is doing a lot of work. Because having been interviewed by you, uh, Cindy, like you don't come to these conversations with a like, hey, man, what are your biggest influences kind of approach? Like you really have done a lot of work to familiarize yourself with the artist's backstories, uh, you know, interviews that they've given in the past, their, uh, you know, their work, uh, you, you are really, um, you know, uh, delving, uh, into Mm. them more than, uh, I think a lot of, uh, folks do. What, what brought you to that sort of approach to your work? Well, I think these artists deserve those kind of interviews. Um, because I learned so much when I ask those questions. And a lot of times um, musicians come to the interviews of Basic Folk and are like baffled by not only the amount of research, but the types of insight that we're looking for from them. You know, I think I remember when we did our interview together, it kind of took you a minute to be like, oh, this is not a normal interview because Ben, I've listened to all of your interviews <laughs> and you are like such a funny guy, like so quick witted that you're able to like tap dance along with an interviewer who's asking you whatever question. But I really feel, I remember the part of the interview where I can't remember what you were talking about, but it was this like earth shattering insight. Uh, and I was just like, yes, we are in it. <laughs> I, I, have told the people the story a number of times of being 
I, you know, I would have uh, called it being called on my bullshit by you because, you know, as a, as an artist, you get interviewed a lot and you sort of come up with sort of, you know, bits that you can do to sort of talk about the way you understand the world. And I was uh, definitely thrown off my game because one of my bits was about uh, once wearing black socks to the gym and, and feeling gym uncomfortable. Socks, yeah. And you were like, yeah. oh, yeah. And you, you jumped in and like... Like ruined the punchline to my bit, and I was like, "Oh no!" <laughs> I, I, need I think to... that's just anxiety or yeah. something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Um, and and that definitely threw me for a loop. But it also, you know, as it does, I think with all of your guests, um, made me bring uh, my A game because uh, you can go a little bit on autopilot when you've you've answered the same questions a lot of times, and that I think is one of your superpowers. Is uh, allowing artists uh, to, to, you know, um, be comfortable, but also, um, you know, get out of perhaps some of the, the f- familiar routes that they might otherwise uh, be used to, mm. to taking. For sure. Yeah. And um, I lost the thread of what I was going to say, <laughs> but it was going to be so smart. I was um, just saying that I really think you're great. Um, speaking of which, um, <laughs> in this uh, episode we're about to hear, we're about to hear a, a really extraordinary artist and talk uh, deeply about uh, his experiences, uh, his influences, his recent solo uh, work. Uh, maybe introduce the episode for folks. For sure, yeah. Wesley Schultz is the lead singer of the Lumineers, a.k.a. Uh, what, who I like to call the most famous folk band in the world. Um, this was such a score for the pod uh, in in that, like, I really like their music and I really love him. Like, I have always been – there's something about him that has always, like, drawn me to, like, what what is Wesley doing? Like, what is happening? And doing the deep dive – uh, on Wesley, I was like not disappointed. Um, he is a really insightful, lovely person, uh, and he gave me the greatest compliment at the end of the interview um, to like humble brag about myself, uh, where he was like, "Thanks for doing this interview. Sometimes I do these these things, and at the end, I just feel like I'm not understood." And I was like, "Exactly." Ching. Exactly. And the money rolled in. No, and the money rolled in because that's what <laughs> podcasters are all about. Uh, well, speaking yeah. of which, maybe you'd like to brag for a couple seconds about some of the other folks that people will uh, hear in your feed, uh, basic folk, uh, um, including most recently Chris Thiele. That's right. Yeah. Chris Thiele of Nickel Creek and Punch Brothers fame, who's won like a million Grammys and has – uh, hundreds of side projects and a MacArthur um, Genius Grant. Yeah, he is, and he, that was a very intimidating interview because he <laughs> is so smart, and he makes not only does he make like delightful, listenable, like folk music and bluegrass music, but he also makes this like virtuosic, kind of like classical brain brainiac music. Um, but I started off the interview asking him to talk about his love for Calvin and Hobbes because he named his son Calvin. So that was a, and it just like kind of, you know, at the end of that, I feel like I should have gotten a MacArthur genius (laughs) award. I a hundred percent agree. And uh, without further ado, uh, this is uh, basic folks interview with Wesley Schultz. Enjoy everybody and be sure to subscribe to basic folk. All right. Hi. Hello. Welcome. This is Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. If you haven't been here before, thank you so much for listening. I'm Cindy House. I host Basic Folk and very pleased to be with you. Excited today for Wesley Schultz of the Lumineers, who I think has one of the most recognizable modern voices in folk music. The Lumineers are arguably the most popular group of the genre, embarking on stadium tours worldwide to support their chart-topping records. 
From afar, he also seems like one of the most humbled and good-natured people to have lived, basically. After having done a deep dive into his history and being able to talk to him in this capacity, I can confirm the rumors are true. Wesley Schultz is very kind, thoughtful, and generous. Well, at least I can confirm he's the nicest person I've ever talked to that also has a signature fry boot. Wesley grew up in Ramsey, New Jersey with his parents, including his clinical psychologist father, who sadly died during Wes's teen years. He became very close with his future bandmate Jeremiah Freights 20 years ago after the death of Jeremiah's brother and Wes's good friend Josh, who died of an overdose. The two bonded through grief, which they expressed through performing music. Eventually, they would make their way to Colorado as the Lumineers and found massive success with their debut album, which included the huge hit Ho Hey. Two more hit albums followed. 2020 included plans for a world tour in support of their latest record, Three. Once the pandemic hit and the world stopped, Wes and Jeremiah found themselves with free time. Jeremiah just released a beautiful instrumental album, Piano Piano. Wes also released his solo debut album, Vignettes, a covers album as a way to introduce people to songs they might not know. He performs songs by Springsteen, Sheryl Crow, Tom Waits, Counting Crows, and for me, it came at exactly the right time. The album is calming, and it grounded me in a way that only music can do. I'm so fortunate for the opportunity to talk to Wes about his music. I hope you enjoy and learn something new about this very special musician, Wesley Schultz, on Basic Folk. Heaven help me now, heaven show the way, get me back on my own two feet. I would lie awake and pray you don't lie away from me. Every night away, every day alone, get me back on my own two feet. I would lie awake and pray you don't lie away from me. Wes, thanks so much for talking to me uh, for the podcast. Sure, no problem. So you're originally from Ramsey, New Jersey, which is a small suburban town. Um, how do you think like, growing up in a town like Ramsey helped shape your personality? Well, I think it's good sometimes to be, I guess, coming from a small pond in a way. Like I remember playing at a talent show and there wasn't, it wasn't like there were thousands of kids in my school you know, you felt like you were a big fish in a little pond if you were good at anything. And I think that gives someone like the maybe delusional confidence to pursue something that they might not if you were <laughs> from New York City right off the bat. I feel like sometimes those small towns can inject this, I don't know, this strange level of um, I can do it. That's the only way I can explain it because it doesn't really make sense when I listen to the songs I was writing that I would have much confidence. How it actually sounded was pretty bad. Um, yeah. so part of it, I think is just having the will or having the confidence to maybe pursue the thing. And then you hopefully improve to meet whatever you had in your head as the, who you really were. Cause you're definitely not that when you start. Oh, let me see if I have it. I have a, yeah, I have it. This is like, I made this right when I started playing guitar for my dad and I called it Wes's greatest hits. Because he didn't like uh, store-bought gifts, so I made him this for Christmas, and it has 18 songs on it, and it was just something you did, I did with my, the mic that came with the computer, but it has four originals, and I was like, that is some set of balls, like, to just put, like, original songs and make other people listen to it when they're that bad, because I listen back, and they're not very good, um, but then covering, you know, Bruce Springsteen, Bob Dylan... Dave Matthews, Tom Petty, just a bunch of artists that I thought were cool. 
I think in order to do that and put it out there, it's there's just something about that uh, small town thing that I think helps you initially. You mm. can become a little delusional, but I think that delusion is really helpful in the beginning because otherwise you wouldn't dare to do it. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, and then in talking about your dad, Mike, he sounds like he was a really special person. Um, it's so cool that you bring up that cover CD you made when you were 15, which you'll have to put out yeah. at like some point, like a Lumineers box set or something. <laughs> Um, can you talk about your dad in terms of vignettes, like where he might have been with you in the process of learning, selecting, and recording these songs? Well, with this, I mean, my dad, he died in 2007, and, you know, I think about him every day. So there's a song on this album uh, I covered of Warren Zevon's called Keep Me In Your Heart. And when I think about him, I think about that idea, and now I have a son, and it it kind of becomes a full circle thing. And in fact, at the end of the album, the way the vignettes ends, the last song is is that song. And then it ends with a, the sound of my wife's pregnant and due in March with a baby girl. And it's her heartbeat on the sonogram. So it's sort of like all of these emotions are packed into that song. He's He's, he's with me a lot in that way. In terms of just writing and I guess the style in which I approach songwriting, it comes from... My dad was a psychologist and I wanted it to be me and him, like Schultz and son, you know, like psychology. Like I wanted to go try to help people by listening and maybe like observing something and then helping them find it. Like I feel like I get helped when I'm around a good listener. Hmm. And so um, that was the initial intent. And then songwriting sort of became a way to focus that, I guess, that empathy that you have to have if you're going to write song from someone else's perspective and tell someone else's story uh, it's very important I think to do that it's almost like a good script writer is probably very empathetic because it's not believable if you're just making a caricature of someone it's better if it's like so odd that it resembles real life you know the the absurdity of life can just be so strange and people are so strange and mm -hmm. fascinating and so that's where I think songwriting can be the same way you can there are certain lines and songs where you know that had to have happened because there's just no way you you just make that up so I, I think his impact on me was very much like being interested in other points of view and, and and being interested in other perspectives and trying to be an empath or trying to be empathetic to to other people and I think it it helps in a lot of avenues of life and we all do it to varying degrees of success but even being in a band, it's like you have to be empathetic to one another or else you implode. You know, you sort of retreat to your own corner and start fighting with each other all the time. At one point, your uncle gave you a Bob Dylan songbook when you were first learning. So Boots of Spanish Leather, which you recorded for vignettes, was one of the first songs you learned on guitar. How do you think learning Dylan songs early on shaped your guitar playing and how do you think it shaped your playing in relation to your singing and your writing? I think covering Bob Dylan was important because you realized his melodies were so deceptively good. You know, like that's why other bands would sing them and they become like number one hits, like the Mamas and the Papas. It's very much like Leonard Cohen or even Tom Waits where he would put his own version of grit and like, almost stank on the track. It would be like, that's definitely Dylan singing, but it offered enough of that that it gave it this really beautiful character. But when you cover those songs and then you sing them in your own voice inevitably because you can't really sing like him anyway, I think it teaches you how much of a gift he had with melody and then matching that with obviously his gift for the lyricism. It kind of raises the bar from day one of, that's a song. Now I have to go try to write a song. And that's what a song means to me is it has to be like, have a beautiful melody, have something to say. But Because I think before there's like almost pre Dylan and post Dylan and before Dylan, a lot of things that were on the radio and were songs, they weren't necessarily about much. You know, even the Beatles talked about meeting Dylan and he would ask them like, well, what are you saying? What are you trying to say? What are your songs about? And they didn't really have an answer. It was always about a girl and holding your hand and falling in love and having your heart broken. It wasn't the vivid paintings and pictures he was making with these songs, essentially. So I think just learning from him 
what was possible with the medium, I guess you could say. It made us all feel like, you know, we're mere mortals. And he's like, I remember hearing that he, he said to Leonard Cohen, they were in a car together driving around. And Dylan said, I, I saw a recent ranking and they ranked you the number one songwriter in the world or whatever. And Leonard Cohen's like, oh, really? And he's like, yeah, well, if you're one, then I'm zero. <laughs> and I was like, that is the greatest uh, <laughs> definition of Dylan to me. It's just, he's like this eternal now. He hovers over all of us. It's almost like he's one of the few artists that's not dead, but it feels like the way he's revered that somehow he died young hmm. because of how, like, he's like a deity or something. You and Jeremiah really bonded back in 2001 um, after your friend and his brother Josh died of an overdose. And then soon after that, your dad died. Um, and then the two of you became really close as you were both processing grief. And you started processing grief through music. So how did learning to grieve through playing music influence like the type of musicians and the type of band you would become? Well, I mean, maybe it goes a little bit back to Bob Dylan where when you're singing, you want to sing about something that matters, at least to you. So for us, when we started writing music together, Jared and I, this was um, 2005. So over 15 years ago, um, at that time, we were singing about his brother, Josh, a little bit. We wrote a couple songs about it. I had already written one that I had shown him before that. And I was kind of trying to say, I think he's he, he likes to say that when we met, he felt like everything had already been said. He didn't even want to be in a band with a singer, but we kind of got aligned through a friend to get some gigs. And then there was great chemistry and we've, we've been sort of brothers ever since in that way. But I think part of it was just, maybe this is just a human element, but trying to make something out of it that didn't feel like a total loss. To me, art at least gives you the some feeling of like, well, I'm going to make something beautiful out of this. Even if it's painful, even if it on its face is like expressing pain, I found that those songs actually give me a lot of comfort. Even though someone might be saying something very kind of upsetting or raw, I feel like that gives me this feeling I'm not alone in the world. And I think when we do that, the same thing can happen to people who listen. So in that way, it feels like you're almost an optimist, even though if you read the lyrics, you'd say, man, that guy's really <laughs> negative. But it's, it's a part of being honest with your feelings that I think when you stifle things, that's one of the gifts my dad, I feel like, gave me was trying to do your best to express what you're feeling and not like pushing it down and tamping it down to the point where you become like a Stepford wife or something where you're a yeah. robot, you know, like that's not real life. And so I felt like we use music to harness some of those things. You know, it's not always as clean as like how it's described, but we did and continue to use it as like that, I don't know, that filter through which you might understand a little bit about yourself. Um, it helps a little bit. It's never like, I still go to a therapist here and there. Like I still need help, but yeah. music is my, uh, my companion in that way. On a pretty different subject, I read this very long and detailed article about your golfing skills and interests. <laughs> um, and I understood like none of it. Um, but you started playing very young and got really good, really fast. You joined the high school golf team. And I don't know if this is true, but it seems like people are pretty surprised by your passion for golf. So I'm wondering like how you relate your worlds of being like this pretty like hip musician who is this really cool band and also like being a really good golf player, which does, it just seems like <laughs> opposite. It's not very cool, is it? Well, Alice Cooper does it. So, <laughs> so I'll just leave it. No, I, so my first job ever was a caddy. So I didn't know anything about golf, but my friend said, Hey, if you carry these guys bags around, you will make a lot of cash. His dad was a member at this country club and he'd say the only drag is you have to get up early. So I was like, 14 or 15 and we drove the 45 minutes to the golf course with his dad and we waited and there's a caddy master and he comes back and he like selects it's like a dating thing where he's like I think you'll be good with this guy and you won't irritate him or <laughs> so you get put out and if you're decent then you start to carry two bags 
So you can't, you're now you're dealing with two guys hitting balls and you have to like go to each ball and find them. And if they hit in the woods, you got to go find it. So it's, I felt like I learned a lot about things that I wanted to be like and things that I didn't want to be like by being a caddy. You know, I have to write like a college essay to get in. Oh yeah. My sister wrote one about how my parents bought matching minivans, which is really a good angle. <laughs> but mine was about watching this guy I was caddying for and how he, he almost hit a hole in one and the hole in one would have given him 10 grand. Like for some reason, if you made a hole in one, there was a sign that said you get $10,000. It was this tournament and it would have just one half of a revolution and it would have gone in and he didn't even react. He's watching this. It rolls. It almost goes in. It doesn't. And later in the round, I asked him like, why didn't you react? Like I it didn't seem like you were even phased, you know? And he said, well, I try to control the things I can control and I I don't worry about the things that I can't. And so I hit that ball and that I did everything I could possibly do and the rest of it's out of my hands. And that was my theme of the essay was like trying to do that in life. You know, it's it's very handy to develop that in music because so much of it is it's timing and it's luck. And then there are other things that you really can control like quality control, you know, putting good songs out and not just rushing stuff just to keep up with the Joneses or something. So in that way, you know, we didn't sign a record deal, not by choice, but till I was almost 30, Jared and I. And by then I kind of knew some of the things that I wanted out of it. And, you know, in the beginning we put out our first record and there was a big rush to get a second one out. And obviously we didn't meet that deadline because it took four years to put Cleopatra out and then three years to put three out. But doing things in that way, I felt like that's an example of we wanted to build a trust with a fan base, with people that we were grateful to have listening to our music and coming to shows that they knew if we put something out and it passed our stamp of approval that they could trust to listen to it. And they wouldn't have to skip around on a CD. It would be like hopefully front to back quality. You know, that was like Tom Petty records for me or many other artists that I really love is they, they seem to do things when they knew it was ready. They took it out of the oven mm. kind of thing. And, um, so anyway, back to golf. Um, uh, I don't play very often these days because we're always touring, but when we're out on tour, it's something that actually like these grizzly kind of like tattooed, um, all like our whole crew comes out and golfs. Like we all just like play, it's called best ball. And you just basically everyone hits and you have to use someone's, you know, shot at least like a certain amount of times in a round. So everybody's important and every, you, you kind of like root for each other and it becomes this team thing. But I could see how on the outside, you know, golf is kind of historically just been stupidly exclusive. And I think it's got to open up, you know, to young people and to all sorts of people. But for me, I, I got into it through a job. They let us play for free on Mondays at this course when it was closed, which funny enough, we'd get like yelled at by members if they didn't know who we were. They'd be like, get off the course. Like it still is this kind of like aggro situation. But that's the way I got into it. And I enjoyed just like learning a song. It's like you never actually master over it. You're, oh, there's always something wrong. Mm. There's like problem solving. And it's like, it's just an interesting thing that you can do and never really get totally right. And that's what it feels like to write a song. You know, you never really, uh, you never really feel like you have mastery over it. You just were like there to receive the signal and you don't know if it'll ever come again. And you're like standing mm -hmm. with your arms out in the wind, like hoping that lightning hits your body again or something. So I like it for that reason, but I don't really get to play nearly as nearly as often as you'd imagine by being in a golf magazine, I think. <laughs> uh, I think they just featured me because uh, they knew I used to play a lot, but I play like a couple times a year now. But I think in order to survive, honestly, golf needs to start making efforts to make it more fun and less like formal, you know, I've, mm. and I've mm -hmm. seen that now on a mountain golf course, there used to be like a lot of harping on dress codes and like tucking in your shirt or whatever else they were talking about. Now I see people with jeans and a t-shirt and it's, it's a okay. So I think they are relaxing because they're realizing that's not fun. Mm. <laughs> so maybe Alice Cooper broke them in and had something to do with it. I don't know, but he claims to have a better handicap than me. And I, I would dispute that. I could probably still beat him even though I play once a year. <laughs> When 
in talking about the songs recorded for vignettes, you mentioned that you would perform cover songs at open mics and bars early in your career. What was your open mic experience like? And what would you tell someone who's like considering trying an open mic? I think you need to be selective about which open mic you you spend your time at. I The first ones I went to quickly became sort of scam open mics where the whole scam was that they kept you there for hours. So you just kept buying drinks. So you first you get there and you get a you, you sign up on the list. Then they give you a number a couple hours later. Then they draw who the number one actually is and then you find out when you're playing last and then you have to be there till you play so it's like a five hour six hour. i'm like i got yeah. a job man like so when i moved to denver um i found an open mic where uh it's a, it's a friend of ours tyler dupre um who's he was in this band they, their name was science partner amazing band an amazing person and him and maria kohler they were in that band together they hosted it so these were some of our first friends we made in denver and i could text tyler and say do you have any open spots because i we were always working like if you're a musician you're like hustling in some way so you have many side gigs usually so i i was no different but every tuesday we were given off jar and i by the job we had because we were like we have to play this open mic so that's where i made nearly all my friends in Denver was through this little open mic where none of them still go. But at the time that was how like timing's everything in life. Um, and I felt so lucky that that was when we happened to have moved to Denver and those were the people that happened to be at the bar. So yeah, like on the, on Cleopatra, we had a B side called where the skies are blue and that's written by Abe Abraham, a guy we met at the open mic. And on the first album we had ain't nobody's problem by Sawmill Joe, that's someone we met at the open mic. You know, these are all people that the stars just align. So I, I think it can be a total gift, but maybe, you know, try a couple and see which one. Go to the one where you feel like you're at home with the people because it's a very, I don't know, it's a very raw thing to reveal a song that's maybe not fully done. And we did plenty of that. Like I remember playing Slow It Down and there was no chorus. It just went on and on. And I could feel the boredom. <laughs> in the room as you know 30 seconds into it it's like we met bono when we opened for you two we met the band and bono said you know i like to listen to new music like when they're putting out a record before they decide the order of songs or which songs or even if a song is working he's like i like to take someone in a car or over to my house and i like to listen to the music through their ears through other people's ears and uh and i think He's kind of famous for this where he'll like play you his music and then like sing along to it, you know, and like look at you and it's kind of intense. But Did he do that to you? I feel like, no, no. I But like during the tour, he had done it to somebody, another band that um, we played this event with where we heard about it later. But I had already read an article about how that happened. And I was like, this is so interesting. I guess this is, I asked him about it. Like, how do you road test something now that you can't go to open mic? And that's what he said. I listened through mm -hmm. other people's ears. So he somehow puts any feeling of like self-consciousness to the side and he just like watches you sort of and enthusiastically listens with you. And if he feels like the vibe is good and the, the signal's being received, then he kind of knows it's working. And if it's a little stiff or forced, he also knows that too. And so I started doing that a little bit as best I could without feeling like strange about it. And it is a little liberating because you're so used to being like, this This is the worst song ever here. Listen. And you know, you're sort of fishing for compliments for your confidence. And I think at some point you, it's nice to just let someone say, I really like that. Or I don't, uh, it's okay. You know, like not my thing. And, um, but open mics were all about, that's the, I think that's the easiest way to figure out if something is quote unquote working. And I have some comedian friends and I feel like they're a little more honest with themselves. They're forced to be about their own material and I know some musicians who are just kind of like pretending like the world doesn't matter to them. But if your song isn't connecting, it's not about selling a certain amount or playing to a certain amount of people. But I think the goal is to shout and, and sort of feel the connection back. And for those who like deny that, I'm sort of like, I don't know why you're doing this then. Like, why don't you just never play then and never release that music? So there is, I think our 
all of us want to connect over music. And so being honest about what's working musically, an open mic can be really helpful for that, where you're like, ah, this does kind of suck. I need to, I need to work on that chorus or it doesn't have one in my case to slow it down. Um, things like that. I think it's really, really a helpful thing and takes a lot of courage the first few times, but it gets easier and easier. I also read that Bono gave you this other advice about like, he has this like prove it and earn it mentality. And it seems like your parents kind of sent you that message as a young person as well with that famous story about how your mom told you that a musician needs to work 40 hours and you'd only played your guitar for (laughs) like a couple hours. How have those types of experiences helped change your approach and relation to shame? I Well, I think, you know, I have a kid now and his name's Lenny. And my wife and I talk about we'd rather have him scrape his knee and make the little falls and not make the big one where, you know, he gets into a car and has had a few and hits a tree going like eight. You know, like that's the stuff where he, he never really made any small mistakes and then he makes the big one and he really pays for it and maybe someone else does too. That's like a biggest fear as a parent. I feel like with scaling that back to like songwriting, I'd much rather know along the way, like checking in with it and feeling when it's not that good, but I still have time to fix it and I can make it a little bit better here and there and I can improve upon it than sitting there and hiding with it and then putting it out in the world and the world just shitting on it. And you're like, oh no, that does... Because there are times when we'll be doing something live and I'll think, this is a great idea. And then you go do it and it it falls really flat. And then maybe you try it again. Maybe you're like, that was the city or the crowd. Maybe it could be... And you have the same experience. It's you. It's you. It's not them. (laughs) You know, like they want to have a good time. You're doing something to get in the way of that. So how can you... I don't know. How can you serve the show in that sense or serve the song? So I feel like with this, it's... It's trying to live in the light or, you know, my greatest fear as a human is to be so not self-aware that the world sees me completely differently than I could see myself. You know, you want to sort of have that aligned in my head. So I I feel like that advice has carried me, whether it's a live show or writing songs. It's like it gives you the guts because it's way better to get it exposed and find out what it's made of in the early stages than to just wait out of fear. And then you really get crushed and it's kind of on your record permanently now. Like mm-hmm. you, you know what I mean? Like you, there are songs that my wife like never liked of mine that I'd show her and I'd be like, this is really good though. Why don't you like this? She's like, I don't know. I just don't, it's okay. You can put it out. And it's always like those kind of people that in your life that tell you the truth, that those are the ones you want to keep around and keep close by. They're your like counsel, I think. So same with songwriting, like our producer, Simon Felice, we can show him stuff and he'll just be totally honest. He doesn't even have to say anything. He'll just get goosebumps or he'll, his body language will change when he hears something he resonates with. And I think that's a big part of it. I I think that it's really much harder if you sort of hide in the shadows and then get really beaten down all at once. Like, so in a weird way, I feel like it's saving yourself the trouble but it still doesn't hurt any less if you really, if, if your heart's on the line, you know, and you're really invested in it and you just love it. I don't know. It's like, you ever listen to yourself back and you can't believe you sound like that, but in your head, it sounded so good. <laughs> it's like that. You know what I mean? Where that's the benefit of recording yourself is that you, you actually do hear what the world hears you like, because it's so hard to hear it as you're doing it. You know, you're sort of sure, but I mean, I'm, I started doing like occasionally doing some yoga on the road and there was a mirror in one room and I was like, that's what my arm is doing. Cause you right, like, you're, right, right. you know, it's like that with so many things. And so a check-in I think is super valuable. And, um, and again, I have some musical friends that just don't believe in that and everybody's got their own way. But for me, it served me well. It's not like I'm just listening to the audience. I'm listening to what my heart is telling me, but I also want to know if it's working in some way. You know, it's like an alchemy and you, you're like a mad scientist, you know, mixing chemicals and you don't even understand what you're doing half the time. So for me, it's it's actually a more compassionate way to treat yourself than to be, you know, like, I know this is great. Screw everyone who doesn't agree with me. Like, you don't need everyone to like it, but you, 
you know what I'm saying? It's like a fine line. You don't want to become like making it for other people, but you also just don't want it to suck and you didn't realize it. The through line for the songs on vignettes was that the writing could stand up to taking everything away, like basically ripping it down to the studs. How did getting so intimate with each of these songs in this calculated way change your relationship to the songs? Well, if you take something like if it makes you happy, I I just always knew that song was really well written. I just, I never really drilled down into how well it, it was done, you know? And so for me, it was exciting to appreciate another artist who is already appreciated, but almost like appreciating them in a new way, like Sheryl Crow, where you're realizing how what she was expressing was so heartfelt and like lonesome and painful but she made it this song that everyone sings along with and there was a kinship there because that's what happens with some of our music you know with Ophelia or Gloria or Jorge or Stubborn Love a lot of these songs are about painful situations and we were able to sort of like a chameleon or something or we were able to disguise it enough where the the music is hopeful and happy sounding, but it's this tough message. So for me, you know, that song in particular as an example was, I don't know what the right word is, not exciting, but just sort of like, oh, I see you. I see what you did here. That's really what a cool way to present those feelings, mm -hmm. you know? But I also wanted to expose, like a lot of my friends were like, I never listened to those verse lyrics, you know, the way that it was presented and the way you sung it I suddenly started to realize that's a really cool verse. Like, cause it just kind of washes mm -hmm. over you. The lyrics kind of just like the way it's presented and it's not a bad thing. It's actually really cool. But um, to expose what was already there was exciting. I guess you could say the exciting is not really the right word, but there's something about that that I really respect in other songwriters. So it was sweet to, I don't know, so much of music and promoting it is about yourself. And it was nice to just, feel like you were giving shine to someone else, you know? It, it, you know, not everything's narcissistic in this business or something, you know? Well, to get you to talk about yourself a little bit more, um, this album also serves as a way to introduce people to songs they might not know. Um, and you know that feeling of music discovery in terms of like being the detective, working to find an artist, find their influences and working backwards. Can you speak to that? joy of music discovery and also like what it means that you especially with this new record are a part of people's musical journeys in that process i remember making a mix cd for kind of myself and it was all cover songs because i was really interested in how people um reinvented songs but it also fascinated me that you know the first time i heard all along the watchtower it wasn't bob dylan's version you know it was like Jimi Hendrix, and then I went backward from there. It happened like a number of times where the cover makes you almost, like you said, a, be a detective and sort of backtrack. Um, so it was something like the Felice Brothers. I feel like they're this band that if you know that band, then you love that band. To know them is to love them. You know, it's uh, but it's it's almost like a club or like, you almost have to have the password to get in. It's a special thing. And so when I heard them, this is the Felice Brothers back in 2007 or eight, it was strange. I was doing my own detective work where I was just, I was like doggedly pursuing the Mercury Lounge. I remember like, I just wanted to play the Mercury Lounge and I didn't know how you played it. So I like made a, I still have it. I made like a binder and I was like. <laughs> like a three ring like, binder? Who's, yeah, like. It's like, who's playing there? So I had like profiles on like every band in that month that was playing there. I, where are they from? Are they on a label? What kind of music do they play? How many albums do they have out? I was like, what does it take? I don't understand. We don't, they never let us in. And through that, I found the Felice Brothers because they were playing that month. And then I heard Battle of the Welterweight and a few other songs, but off this album Tonight at the Arizona. And it made me just, I was in, you know, I was just totally in. And I drove two and a half hours to go see them a couple weeks later in Kingston. And that was one of the first shows they ever sold out. And there was just like electricity in the air. You know, you could feel it. 
And, uh, you know, you fast forward 12 years later and I'm, you know, having dinner with Simon on his birthday in the Catskills and we're best friends. So it's like so crazy. And he was the drummer in that band. He's one of the Felice brothers. So exposing their music, it's, it's like shining a light on something, you know, is already so great. And it's just a matter of people just having any level of exposure like positive radiation or something, you know, like it, it just gets in you and you can't really deny it after that. So for me, they're that kind of band. Ian Fleece is just this like, Simon calls him the Oracle. He's like just a ridiculous lyricist, incredible guitar player, singer. So I just really appreciate them. And to cover them was, um, I, it was a joy because it's sharing something I already love with the world that I think could be more well-known, but I think they like it that way. Hmm. You know, they're sort of like, we like, we like you having to work hard to find us, you know? And I'm like, yeah. let me make it a little easier for a minute. Um, Cause more people need, more people need to hear this music. You know, it's, it's, they feel like they're suspended in time. There's no, like, it's almost like the band yeah. where you don't really know if you heard them where they're from. And then he'll say a line like the blue Burger King sign reminds me of her mother's eyes. And I was like, that's a really modern reference with an old sounding song. It was the, <laughs> that's when my head exploded. I was like, this is, wow, this is yeah. deep. He has these, you know, super specific, vibrant references in his music that it f- makes you feel like you're watching one of those films where they're jumping around in time. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, that's one of the examples of like exposing a band that you love a little bit more. Not to say I'm doing that, but I hope I am in some way like to to give that music to a kid or anybody that maybe never heard of them. Now they're going to go back and they have a whole catalog of music to listen to if they want to. Another intention was that the music should be a friend and companion to the listener in good times and bad. And how did you use your experience with music as a friend, music as a companion for this record? We kept referencing James Taylor's greatest hits like in the studio when we were decompressing, that would be the music we'd put on when we we're cooking or hanging out. Something like that where we kept saying, I don't want this music to ask anything of us. It's just there for you, you know, like porridge or something. You know, it's just like, it's just like very comforting. And um, there are other albums where you make them and you're like, I really want to challenge this listener. Let's do this in a certain time signature or like take something like Jimmy Sparks on our last album where it's sort of like this journey of lyrics. And if you don't follow along, you're lost. So you got to follow it. It's like a little bit of a challenge to the listener. Whereas this is like, just sit back. You could be doing just about anything. And this is here for you. You know, Mm -hmm. like whether you're celebrating something or whether you're upset about something, it's a much different approach. So I thought that was good because it was Simon's idea to sort of have that as the North star. Um, but I think he has that gift of like seeing the the spirit of whatever the artist is trying to make and then mm. articulating it. Again, you sort of like know what you're trying to accomplish. I think that's a that's a big part of it and being that sort of self-aware of that. You know how there's like Pinterest boards on virtual, in the virtual way that mm. we do like a inspiration board at the studio where you put like, it doesn't have to be directly related, but it's something that makes you feel connected to the record you're making as a theme. And so every record we, it gets more and more full with the days that go by, you know, you, you find something and, and you put it up there. Like one of the, I remember the last album, it was like a white Buffalo. We kept putting pictures of white Buffalo. Like we were chasing this like elusive, you know, creature and, and it felt like you were on this mission. And there was a lot of other things that made the inspiration board. But I remember that one as like, it doesn't really make sense to an outsider, but when you're, when you're in it, you're like, I know why that's up there and it's keeping you on the trail. Right. You know, so that kind of stuff I think goes a long way. You recorded Bruce Springsteen's My City of Ruins, which um, when Bruce Springsteen released it, it was a post 9-11 anthem. Um, How do you see that song translating into modern times? Well, I think, you know, with the pandemic, it, it kind of applies to so many cities around the world, you know, not just the American cities. Cause he talks about boarded up windows, empty streets and my brother's down on his knees. There's like 
a lot of people struggling right now, literally, and also just like in their own heads. So like almost existentially, people feel trapped. Um, people are getting sick and dying. So, and then there's people who don't think it's happening or I, I don't know. There's just like alternate realities and it's just, just a crazy time. And uh, his message of come on, rise up, rise up. It's like, I feel like he's hopeful and he'll always be hopeful even in the face of this towering adversity that is this situation. I think that the song feels like it applies to or it applied to 9-11 or it applied to Asbury Park for him. It's almost like the song has this elasticity. You know, it can work in so many different ways. So for me, walking around Denver, I took a walk with my wife and son. Um, there's Colfax Ave. It runs it's like one of the longest avenues in America. And it and it was tons and tons of damage done, graffiti and quite literally boarded up windows and people begging and other people trying to clean up. The day after, there were these people getting gassed, protests, the curfew. And it just felt like, I can't believe this is where we live. Like, this doesn't feel like home right now. You know, and then to hear like those lines, like my city of ruins, um, you're like hoping that in a sense of a phoenix, you know, we can rise out of this, like rising out from the ashes because this is this is not good. And um, I feel like Denver's no different than so many other cities um, who are, you know, having even harder times. We had a brief time of this, but it's happening all over. And so that was a big impetus to put it on. And I had also been covering it for a number of years. So it was something that I loved playing and just never thought I was going to make a solo record. So... It was just one of those things I would play to myself. Wes, are you a perfectionist? Um, that's a weird question because I feel like I can't stand like Broadway singers, you know, like, <laughs> and I feel like they sing perfectly. So I love, I'm a perfectionist when it comes to like, maybe hearing when the vulnerability is just right in the voice or in a violin or whatever, you, you you hear the flaws and they sort of draw you in or the sound of a real piano and not a keyboard. To me, I don't know. It's almost like when you Photoshop something over and over, it starts to lose something about it. And when we see these older photos, we like nostalgic about them, but maybe the reason is because of their limitations and like their imperfections and, so in a weird way, that's like, that's my white buffalo is like, is trying to find things that are flawed, but in a way I like, hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's, it's even the way that I, the sound I hear in my head for a guitar, it's never like glassy, smooth and perfect. It's like all kind of cruddy, but like just enough, you know, like enough stank on it. Not like <laughs> where you can't handle it and it's gross. Um, so we're like you know, perfectly imperfect or something like that. The reason that I asked that question is that what I was getting at in reading about the way that Lumineers records were recorded was very like calculated and intentional. And then this sort of was just like done impromptu, very scrappy. Yeah. I feel like we're sort of getting, we're both very crafted in what we do as, as the Lumineers. Um, and poured over, but we're also getting better at doing things off the cuff. You know, I think in the beginning it was a control, a sense of control gave us comfort. Like we know we can't be hurt if we control everything. And then like last record, we were recording my cell and we did it to a click and it sounded like shit. And then we just, I remember Pete Souza was there. The white house photographer was there. And so there's this level of pressure. We usually don't have anyone there. And he's taking photos. He's kind of just watching us the whole day. And we recorded every track for my cell, like every individual track to a click and then threw away the whole thing and just did it live in the room. And he saw all of this. And I, I don't know if he had more or less respect for us after this, <laughs> but for me, um, there was no comparison. Like the one that we did live was the one that made the record and it had the magic because there wasn't like a click, 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 click you know a little mm. metronome going in your ears it was just vibe mm. and i don't think we would have done that 
10 years ago, we would have been too scared. Like, well, what if it doesn't, what if we can't go back and edit or what if we can't just what you got to do? That's like, sounds good. Sounds better this way. But to match that with, I remember we really liked the demo and how much like room hiss it had. We had these heaters that were like steam fed radiators and they were like in the background. Like, and we liked that so much that we put that in the mix like we added that. So that's where like a craft comes in where it's a little bit like we're very intentional with a lot of things, but I think we're getting better at making records in a way because we're open to the other side of things, which is like when something is cool and spontaneous, you have to be open to that if you really want to make something special. And so with vignettes, it was almost all off the cuff because I was like learning half these songs that day. <laughs> like I just did a I just did a live stream of the album and I knew like four of these songs and the rest I had to rehearse for 2 weeks just to even remember them. You know, like the lyrics and the chords. So that was a very like, kind of like liberating thing to just go in and say to my wife, I don't know what we're recording today. I'll see you when I get back and then come back. We did two songs again. We finished two songs. <laughs> so I think that that could never happen with Lumineers record in a way because we're there's too many more details. These were a little more barren and stripped back, mm. but it taught me more about that. You know, it's kind of like, you know, hopefully you you get together with someone that compliments you and challenges you. And I felt like that's what this did to me. Like we just finished basically writing seven songs over the last couple months, Jar and I. So we're almost done with the record. And normally we would demo that out to an absurd degree. Like we would create a demo that would then be brought to the studio and we'd just be recreating it, which is fine, right? It gives you a sense of like, I'm not wasting any time in here. And, but this time around, all we have is voice memos that didn't even make it into Pro Tools because we're like, this is what we need. This is the sketch we need. And we're gonna go into the studio with this. We're not gonna like go so far this time with it. I think we know what we wanna do. Like I remember we went in to record ho hey and that has two different shifts in time and we knew exactly where the ramp was for that and we knew when this instrument came in this thing left we, we knew everything about the map of that song because we had recorded it so many times and mm, okay i mean happens with almost all our records this time around it's literally just voice memos of jerry and i i'm on guitar he's on piano and i'm singing into the room and that's what we're going to go in with because we know we're just doing what we would already do in the studio. We just felt like that was more safe. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you feel more in control. But what you lose, I think, a little bit is if you play it like 50 or 100 times, by the time you go to record it, you almost have these patterns you know, worn in and you're not as open to like doing something new and different. So like we're going to be doing that. And I think that's a sign of like, feeling okay with yourself enough to leave it to chance a little bit in the studio mm. it's not about laziness we could do it we actually did it with the song where we had 15 different versions of the song this one song we were working on for these seven songs and then we listened to the voice memo and we're like that's just better <laughs> and so we scrapped we scrapped all 15 and um just went back to the voice memo and we said i think that's fine i think we know what we want to do with that so it's like we're learning you know but um a lot of it is like, it's scary putting your baby out in the world. I always imagine it like you literally put your baby in a basket and leave it in the woods and hope that the wolves don't get it, you know, before, before the angels rescue it or whatever. It's like, that's how precious these songs can feel. Mm. And the sense of control is just that. It's not necessarily real, but like doing 50 demos of a song gives you a feeling like, well, I did my due diligence, you know, like <laughs> now you can't hurt me, but they still might not like your song. Right. So you got to get over that. So part of it is that. Well, if you just stop reading the reviews. Wes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so your voice is sounding like really beautiful on vignettes. Thanks. What do you think of your vocal performance on this record? And in general, like, what do you think of your voice and how do you care for it? Well, for me, that was a struggle to find anything that felt like my voice for probably eight years. It was like, I was really good at, at imitating other singers, you know? And it took me a while to then say, well, what do I sound like? Because that's, again, like, maybe you're scared that when you sing like whatever you really sound like, that people are like, I don't like that, you know? So you hide behind these impressions. 
So part of it is like embracing that. I remember having a realization that if I just sang like I would if I was around like a campfire and no one was around, like how would I sing? And that that kind of started channeling something and then I wasn't afraid to sing higher or whatever I would just normally do. And then as far as like taking care of my voice, that's been a learning curve that I had to learn in a hurry. I got I got hurt at one point and sort of had to go on vocal rest. And then I learned a ton about how to take care of oneself on the road and off. And so, so much of it has to do with like, it doesn't have much to do with singing. It's like what you do when you're not singing. You know, it's like you're not supposed to eat two plus hours or drink anything, including water before you go to bed. Cause I guess all your stomach acid kind of goes up your esophagus and rests on your vocal cords. If you have things in your stomach. Wow. Do you know when, um, you can cook like vegetables and acid, like let's say kale, you can soak in lemon, lemon juice, and it will cook it. The acidity will literally like break it down. So then your stomach can digest it like beef carpaccio or they do it with different meats and stuff like that. That's what you're doing to your vocal cord. It's just sitting in acid. Oh my God. And then it's wounded. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so that's why a lot of times when you wake up in the morning with that deep, low voice, that sound is like you're, you sort of like very slightly injured your vocal cords every day. So I was doing that because I was like staying up late, drinking, eating. And so it opens you up to a lot of like, I guess, injury. And then learning how to warm up. I was so afraid to go to a vocal teacher or coach for the longest time because I was like, they're going to change my style. They're going like, to make me sing like an opera singer or something that I don't like. And then I was forced to go to one and they didn't change a thing. Rob Stevenson and uh, Mindy Pack are the names. And they're, anyone can take lessons from them as far as I know. And they're, they've, they've worked with a ton of people. You know, I met them through Dave Matthews Band, but they've worked with Brandy Carlisle and and then really poppy kind of singers. They, they've worked with all kinds. Uh, mm-hmm. Screamo. Mindy was describing how you sing Screamo and how those guys do that every day. You gonna, you going to do it? I can't do it. I've never learned, but <laughs> she teaches people now. And you sing with like, not your vocal cords, but they call them like your false folds that like you'll never injure those. So it's like, that's why those guys can do that every night. Like, <laughs> like they would destroy their vocal cords if they actually were using them. Right. So they've like, through some crazy technique, figured out how to sing that way. But anyway, I would recommend to anybody who's taking music seriously and wants to get better and mostly just sing consistent, that good vocal coaches will never change your style. They'll just help you sing in a, I would call it like a healthy way. So a lot of the vowels I was singing were like just the wrong technique. They sound the same, but I learned how to sing them the right way so I can sing them every night and actually sing them with more power than I could when I thought I was doing it in like my way. You know, it's like eat a lot of vowels. Like if I said, you know, pack yourself a toothbrush, deer. Like learning how to sing the word deer was like three months. Wow. Of just like, she gave me this thing I had to practice. And then it felt so weird in the beginning. And now it's like, it's a muscle memory thing. And now I just can sing that and hit that note. And I'm not hoarse when I'm getting off stage. You know, like every night I'd call my wife if she was not on the road with me and I'd, she'd say, oh, did you just get done singing? Because she could tell. And now she can't because of the way. So oh, that's great. It's something I, when I meet people who are maybe, I'm almost 38. If I meet like a 21 year old singer who's amazing and they sing hard and have a lot of grit, I always tell them, do you have a vocal coach? Because I know a good one. And you're, you'll thank me, you know, because the worst feeling is when your voice goes out mm. in the middle of a tour because you're sick. And these types of coaches, I've I've never missed a show, but I've never felt like since working with them that I couldn't sing, and even if I was very ill, mm. you know, it's like they can help you with anything. So, Mindy Pack is the one I work with mostly, and she's she's amazing. So, she makes you think sing through this like coffee straw. It's the weirdest thing. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I recommend it to people, and you shouldn't be scared that you're you're going to lose your style because that's not what they do. All right, Wes. Here's the lightning round. You ready? Okay. Yes. I'll try to be fast. What is your karaoke song? Ooh. Uh, what is it? It's uh, I'll say Twist and Shout. Dogs or cats or something else? Dogs. What is your coffee order? Americano Black. Mavis Staples or Aretha Franklin? Hmm. That is a tough one. Uh, I'll say Aretha. First celebrity crush? 
don't even remember. Uh, the lady from <laughs> Peg from uh, Love and Marriage. For real? Wow. Yeah, she was. She was. I thought she was pretty hot. She was also on Lost. Yeah, she was. Yeah, she was. She's great. Who's the nicest musician you've ever met? I would say Bonnie Raitt. First album you bought with your own money? Green Day Dookie. What was your first concert? The Samples at Irving Plaza. What's the last book you read? Leaders Eat Last. Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Beatles. Flying or Invisibility? Flying. Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars. Lord of the Rings or Narnia? Lord of the Rings. All right, here's the last one. You've been doing so good so far, so let's see. Where's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? I would say South Africa. Did a safari there all over Cape Town's beautiful and everything. Um, blown away by it, but I would say uh, doing an actual safari and seeing animals in a natural environment was like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. That's great. All right, yeah. Wes, thank you so much for your time, for being so generous. Yeah. And I've just like admired you for so long and you like did oh. not disappoint <laughs> in this interview. It was just so wonderful to talk to you. And it was such a pleasure, like doing a deep dive into your life. And, you know, I wish you all the best of luck. Thank you so much. That means a lot. Thank you. It was, it was lovely talking to you. And it's nice to actually like be able to give full answers because sometimes people are like, all right, here we are. With Wes, and, da, 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 and then it's over and you're like, I don't feel understood. So. Thank you. Basic Folk This Week was produced by the very talented and popular Sarah Wardrop. Thank you so much, Sarah. Lindsay Myers is our business manager. I'm the host, Cindy House. Thanks so much for listening. Basic Folk is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network. You can rate, review, subscribe, and share this episode with a friend if you think that you know someone who would like it. Uh, you can check out the podcast wherever you get your pods or at my website cindyhouse.net and we'll talk to you later okay bye